0: To uh, obey means to live a different way. Let me show you what I mean out of First John chapter two. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to stop right there and just preach that verse. But for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in them. But whoever keeps His word in them truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says they abide in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Man, what a great section. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, sometimes the biblical writers are a little bit confusing, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he or she is in the light and hates their brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his or her brother abides in the light, and in them there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates their brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. Like I wanted to preach that verse. Right there we see why our world is so dysfunctional. Verse 12. I'm writing to you, it's almost like he's singing here because it's rendered in verse. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, And the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it's the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us... They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he or she who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he or she who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Just as it has been taught you, abide in him. It really struck me as I was working through this chapter this week that um, I could honestly preach an entire 10-week series on First John chapter 2. It uh, pains me to not preach the whole chapter. But uh, as I've been doing through the course of this series, for today's purposes I'm going to zone in on just a couple of verses in that epic chapter. But uh, feel free and go back and read it again this week. It's just that good. A few little um, tidbits for you as we start here on the history of Christianity. For its first 366 years, Christianity was a radically counter-cultural movement. If you're thinking 366 is a bit of a strange number, it is. Because in 367 A.D., the Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea. It was at the Council of Nicaea that two very important things happened. One, the canon of Scripture as it is today recognized, I mean it's, the the canon they recognized in 367 was slightly different than the Bible as we have it today. It included um, some of the books that would be included in what we now call the Jerusalem Bible, the Bible that is used in Catholic churches around the world. But for all intents and purposes, the canon of scripture as we know it today was uh, solidified, finalized at the Council of Nicaea in 367 A.D., The other thing that uh, the Emperor Constantine did at that time was uh, form the Nicene Creed. Now, he didn't do it, but he gathered all of the bishops of the Roman world together in Nicaea. Imagine, wherever you were as a bishop, a bishop at that time was an overseer, a pastor, so I would be one of the bishops in the city of Guelph. He gathered all those bishops together, in fact, sent soldiers to collect them and bring them all expenses paid to gather together in Nicaea, so that they might agree once and for all what Christianity was all about. This happened in 367 AD. Most historians believe that Constantine did this in order to jump onto Christianity, which was by that time, 367 years into its history, um, the dominant religious system or faith system in the Roman world. However, the official state religion of Rome was anything but Christianity. And so he had this massive, what had been until that time, underground movement called Christianity that had now gained enough steam that Constantine the emperor decided that if he got the Christians to agree once and for all on what Christianity was, he could make it the state religion and use its size and its influence to bring stability to his empire. And so it was from 367 A.D. onward that Christianity begins to become a political movement. It begins to become a um, movement that is both sanctioned by and oftentimes to our detriment in cahoots with the governmental authorities. But for the first 366 years in its history, Christianity was a radical movement. And it was radically counter-cultural. With that as a backdrop, it's interesting to note that for the first 100 years of Canadian history, Christianity was the foundational worldview. I know that may sound very strange, but all you have to do if you want to prove me right is take a walk through any established city in Canada, walk through the heart of downtown, and count how many old stone churches there are. Next thing, count the distance between them and marvel at the fact that in a small-sized city like our city, for example, the city of Guelph, you could have... Two churches within one city block. One from the other. One a Presbyterian church, one a United church. Just down the road, the Anglican church. Up the road, the Catholic cathedral. Just up the road from there, another United church. Why did you have so many churches in the cities of Canada throughout its first 100 years? Because Christendom was the foundational worldview in the developed world at that time. So for its first 100 years, our country's foundational worldview was Christianity. Then came the 1960s, the 1970s, and the 1980s. What happened in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s? Our grandparents, my grandparents' generation, began to give way to the generation of their children, the boomers. The builder generation, the greatest generation, began to see their influence wane, and the influence of their children began to come to the fore through the 1960s, through the 1970s, and through the 1980s. And what many of the peers of my parents did was move away from their parents' allegiance to church. When they were growing up, going to church was just what you did. Every Sunday you were in church. If you were a Baptist, every Wednesday you were at Sunday school or Bible study. Okay, Church was a way of life. And so as these boomers went through the sexual revolution in the 1960s and the, you know, Epic political upheavals that happened through the 1970s and then the rampant prosperity in the 1980s and the Reagan years, they began to develop agency, they began to develop power, they began to develop a worldview that was completely different from that of their parents, and so many of them began to move away from church, which is why many of my peers grew up with parents who intentionally never took them to church. And so it was in my generation that Christendom began to perish in the West. So that by the time we came to the 2000s, Canada was a largely post-Christian nation. I remember starting out as a church planter in the year 2000, realizing that I was going to be planting a church in a culture that was no longer even residually Christian. If you were to ask the average Canadian on the street about the deeper things of Christianity, they would have absolutely no idea what it's about. And of course, in the last 20 years, as um, the gay rights movement has gained huge steam and the religious right movement has gained steam of its own, sadly, Christianity has come to be defined as a us-against-them sort of thing, where the Christians are those angry Bible-thumpers who hate gay people. And uh, really, that's all the average person knows when it comes to Christianity. It has all but passed away as a cultural movement, at least in our context. We are now a post Christian nation. Twenty years later, twenty years on from the year 2000, Christianity, strangely enough, has become radically countercultural again. Which, for our purposes, is quite helpful because I believe that we are living in an age of the world that is much closer to the age of the world, to the culture of the age of the world in which John was writing First John. For us who follow Jesus today it is quite strange, like it would have been quite strange for John's original audience to be called followers of Jesus. What's interesting to me is that in our highly narcissistic, um, social media-saturated world, the selflessness that is at the core of the way of Jesus is something that absolutely sets us apart from everyone around us, And that deep selflessness that runs at the core of Jesus' message and way is, at the very least, highly irregular. What is Christianity all about if you're to boil it down to brass tacks? What's it about? Love God, love neighbor as you love yourself. It's a paraphrase, of course, of the royal law out of Matthew 22, 37 through 40. What's Christianity about? Learn to love God with everything you've got. Learn to love your neighbor as you learn to love your Self. And this is radically different from the way almost everybody you know in the world around you is living. To live that way, to live in obedience to the royal law of loving God and loving neighbor, is to live a totally different way. And so today my hope is to give you six strategies to help you live that totally different way. Strategy number one. Accept that you are not in charge. I get this out of 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world. You know what I love about this? John is bossing you around. Do not love the world. This is an opportunity for me to point out to you how often it is that the biblical writers speak imperatively. How often the biblical writers could be called guilty of bossing you around, of telling you what's to do. This is something that your peers will react against as they begin to interact with the Bible. Say, why? why are they always telling me what to do? Who are they to tell me what to do? They're always bossing you around. Why are the biblical writers always bossing you around? Well, because they saw themselves as speaking for God. They truly believed that God was speaking through them. Now, here's the question. You may think that's strange. But imagine if you had, actually had, I mean for real, for real, had a message from God. Okay? God shows up in your house, gives you a message, says, look, I want you to share this message with as many people as possible. If God actually showed up in your house and gave you a message for your peers, would you be shy about sharing that message? The answer is, heck no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. If God actually gave you a message to share with your peers, if you actually believe that God spoke to you and is intending to speak through you to those around you, you'd be bossing people around just like the biblical writers are bossing us around. Do not love the world. To obey means to live a different way, which in this context, here in verse 15, means to obey. And if you're anything like me, you know that obedience is not necessarily our natural default setting. Okay? Someone tells you what to do, if you're anything like me, you naturally want to not do it. You naturally want to react against it. But if you want to live the different way, you need to obey God when he speaks to you because you are not in charge. Also, second strategy, um, don't sell your soul to the devil. That's some rich teaching right there. Don't sell your soul to the devil. Where do I get that from? Still in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. This was my eureka moment in today's message. I always hope when I come to the text to learn something new. I don't always learn something new. Sometimes I'm preaching a text that I'm really familiar with, and so sometimes it's just the way in which I structure it or the way in which I apply or interpret it, which is new. But uh, once in a while, I get a real humdinger, and I come to a point that rocks my world, and this was that point for me this week. Do not love the world or the things in the world. I looked up the word love, and of course, whenever you look at the word love in the New Testament, you're expecting it to be rooted in the word agape, which means to selflessly love, and that is the root here. So you should rightly read this part of verse 15. Do not selflessly love the world. What does selfless love mean in the New Testament? It means to give your life away. And so if you read it that way, what John is saying here is don't give your life away to the world. Do you see where this is going? Don't sell your soul. Don't sell your soul. For what will it profit a man? What will it profit a woman? If they gain the whole world but lose their soul. In the words of Mark chapter 8, verse 36. Don't sell your soul. Let me tell you this morning with great joy that the temptation to um, sell yourself to get ahead is literally from the devil. How do I know? Because I remember the story out of Matthew chapter 4 when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is fasting in the wilderness. Spirit led him there, and he was tempted by the devil. After he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No kidding. So to take advantage of his weakness, that's when the tempter shows up. says to him, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Verse 4, but Jesus answered and says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. devil tries again, took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. I've stood beneath it in Jerusalem. Said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He quotes the Bible here now. Just shows you anybody can use the Bible to try and prove their point. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Here we come to the crux. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, I love my Jesus. Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve." Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The temptation to sell yourself to get ahead is literally from the devil. I want to invite you this morning, in light of this, to stop trading away the hours of your life for money. And if you're thinking, Todd, that's what everyone in our culture does. Pastor Todd says to you, exactly. Exactly. And we're trying to teach you to live a totally different way. Stop trading away the hours of your life for money and start receiving it. Doing what God has called you to do. You know, one of the hallmarks of my ministry has been over the last 26 years? Every church I ever pastor, tons of people quit their jobs and begin pursuing their passions. Why? Because this through line has made its way into every year of ministry I have spent. I consider it one of the great obscenities of the Western age that we have trained our people, starting in their youth, to believe that the highest goal of human life ought to be to amass as much property and as much money as possible, and that they are right and in fact, crookedly righteous to do anything it takes to trade any part of their life away to amass as much as possible. And I believe that that imperative is from the spirit of Antichrist, from a spirit that would deny who Jesus is, from a spirit that would deny what Jesus says, from a spirit that would do everything it can to try to stop you from living the way Jesus has called you to live. And so I say to you, stop it. Stop trading away the hours of your life for money and rediscover what it is that God called you to do. And this week, start doing what God has called you to do. Walk in freedom. I think I read somewhere in the New Testament that it is for freedom that Christ has made us free. It would be a terrible thing to waste, wouldn't it? Yes, freedom would be a terrible thing. To waste. And while you're at it, point number three, I want to invite you to adopt a more either-or or, or give-and-take attitude and demeanor. I'm still in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Let me be real quick here. If anyone is in the world. Here we get the either-or context. Okay. If anyone. This means if anyone. This applies to everyone. This is a very much an either-or statement. Either you love and obey God, Or you love and obey yourself. We talked about this last week. What's the answer for you? Should you be really honest? Who do you love more? Jesus or yourself? Should be really honest. Who do you listen to more? What Jesus commands you to do through his word and through his indwelling spirit that is in you? Or do you obey your own impulses more often than not? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Here we get to the give and take part. The love of the Father is not in them. What is the love of the Father? What kind of love are we talking about here? Well, this is one of those beautiful double entendres that often occurs in the New Testament. The love of the Father means the love that flows from the Father to you, and then the love that flows from you to Him in response. It's a beautiful kind of love. It's the love that keeps me coming to church. To be reminded that love is real. To experience that love for myself. The love that flows from the Father to me. And then the love that flows back from me to the Father in response. It's a give and take kind of love. If you want to live different, you need to answer these two questions for yourself. One, who's your master? You or God? Answer that question. That's the either or question. And then answer this one. Are you walking in the love of God that flows from Him to you and then in response from you to Him? Or have you left your first love? Echoing the words, of course, of Revelation 2-4. That's the give and take thing. Giving and taking, receiving and giving, the love of the Father. Have you left your first love? Now, once you've answered those questions, point number four, adjust your input-output and uh, own your desires rather than letting them own you. Let me read to you um, verse 16. This is where I get this concept from. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father but is from the world. The desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes. So the flesh, what you feel and experience. The eyes, what you see and imagine. The desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes. And pride in possessions. The pride of life, another uh, New Testament version puts it. The word here for desire is important. It's important that you understand it as well. It's epithumia. Epithumia. This is the the big word for lust in the New Testament. And it's important that you understand it. Epithumia, lust, desire in this context, means the inordinate cultivated longing for. So when we say the desires of the flesh, we should hear the inordinate cultivated longing for the flesh. So let me just um, talk to you for a minute here about lust. It's really important, especially if you're a younger person. Um, I and many of my peers were tortured in our teenage years trying to fight, constantly fight lust in our lives because we grew up in very conservative contexts that hammered this point home. For the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, is not from the Father passing away. And uh, we lived under great condemnation because every time we found ourselves in a park on a summer day and a sweet young thing jogged by, we thought that we were somehow lusting after her as that sweet young thing evoked in us A sexual response. Okay? That is not what lust is. I wrote about this in my first book, which is coming out later this year, Lord willing, in the fall. Let me tell you about the jogger in the park. The reaction that you have to the jogger, and and I'm not a woman, but I know that this works both ways. You may see a fine, splendid man jogging through the park, and that may evoke a response in you. Okay? That response has been built into you by God so that you will obey his first commandment. To be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So that response is absolutely natural. In fact, I would say that that response is God-given. So next time you're in the park and a sweet young thing gets your motor running, okay, motor on home to your spouse and get busy obeying the God of the Bible. Okay, That's how that is meant to work. We're talking input-output here. Okay? You get an input, that evokes a response. Humans are completely built and wired this way, it's absolutely normal. Okay? So stop feeling condemned because you receive an input and it evokes a response. That's normal. It's what you do with it that matters. It's the output that matters. So, if you were to lust after that sweet young thing in the park, if it's epithumia we're talking about, you would not just have the response to that jogger, but then you would begin... Figuring out what time that jogger is there every day, and you'd be manipulating your schedule to be there as that jogger jogged by, and then you'd be trying to figure out a way to meet them, and then once you've met them, you'd be trying to figure out ways to, you know, build a relationship with them, and then you'd be obsessing about them at night, trying to figure out how to take that relationship to the next level, and so lust is born in the human heart. Okay? Lust, desire is epithumia, the inordinates, cultivated, meaning you work at it, longing for something. So next time you receive an input that evokes a response, make sure that your output is worked out in selfless love that gives God glory, brings you joy, and makes positive change in the world. It's the selfless love bit that'll save you every time. If you ever are caught in a moment where you're not sure what to do, ask yourself if it is most selflessly loving to act on this impulse or not. Every single time, you will find that abiding by the self-giving love of God and neighbor will keep you from sinning. Which is why Jesus himself says that all the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. If you love God and love neighbor, if you're learning to love God with everything you've got, and you're learning to love your neighbor with everything you've got, you will recognize in that moment that that jogger in the park is your neighbor, and you would be sinning against them to act, on the response you feel, and you would know instantly in that moment that your job is to run home to your spouse and to, be, and to obey God, to fill the earth with creatures made to be his friends. If you want to live different, own your desires. Stop pretending that they don't exist. Okay? Input, response, that's normal. Own your desires. Stop letting them own you. Remember, yes, evil has an output, but so does good. So, Somebody shout! So does good. You can do the right thing. Yes, you can. It is for freedom that Christ has made us free. You are no longer a slave to sin if you are in Christ. Therefore, you can do good. You, you have been made righteous in Christ. You can act like it. You can do the right thing in any given situation. You need to remember, verse 16, For all that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, so these sinful, lustful desires, they're not from the Father, they are from the world. So um, let me just talk for one more moment about the output of evil. I would say with boldness that I believe it is not good to work endlessly sacrificing your spouse and kids on the altar of prosperity so that you can get ahead. You and I both know that this is the way in Western culture. And I would point you to the Old Testament, Were one of the consistent themes in the Old Testament, one of the consistent reasons that God is so incensed at the people living in the land of Canaan is because they were in the habit of sacrificing their children to the gods Molech. And the god Molech was a god of fire. And the rite involved literally throwing your child down into a blazing fire, sacrificing him to the fire god. Why? For prosperity. So that you would have good crops that year. And I would ask you, if that kind of abhorrent child sacrifice is that much different than the way in which so many of us have been programmed to live, sacrificing our spouse and our kids on the altar of prosperity, doing whatever it takes to get ahead at work, while neglecting the work that we have to do at home. Make no mistake, evil has an output, and there's a chance that you, my friend, are buying into it. You may need to, point number five, check your investments. Check your investments. Let me read to you, verse 17. The world is passing away, along with its desires. But who, So good. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Hear me, church. The world is passing away, along with its inordinate, cultivated longings. What has this epidemic taught us, if not that people are greater than possessions? That relationships are greater than riches, and that we is greater than me. Look, if you knew that the airlines were going to lose 90% of their business, like Warren Buffett did last week, would you not divest yourself of your stocks in the airlines? Well, sure you would. If someone told you that the airlines were going to lose 90% of their business... Of course you would divest yourself. The Bible here is telling you in verse 17 of 1 John chapter 2 that the world is passing away along with its inordinate cultivated longings. It's guaranteed. The world is passing away along with its desires. So, let me ask you this morning because I love you. Are you investing in certain death? Or are you investing in certain life? Skidach. How do we know it's certain life? Because we remember the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Here we come to it. That whomsoever believeth on him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. If you want to live different, here's my final point, point number six. And Kathy, you can join me because I'm done. If you want to live different, stop living for the here and now, and start living for forever. For the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let me unpack that real quick. Whoever means that this invitation is open to everyone. Does means that this involves action. The will of God we know, is for you to learn to love God with everything you've got and to learn to love your neighbor as yourself. And last time I checked, abides forever means is remaining into the eons. So here's two phrases for you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or, uh, gee, it looks like we're in this forever. Forever. Which of those two phrases most accurately characterizes you? Accept that you're not in charge. Don't sell your soul to the devil. Adopt a more either-or, give-or-take mentality. Friend, own your desires. Stop letting your desires own you. Check your investments to make sure... That you're invested in something that will live forever and while you're at it, stop living for today and start receive it. Start living with forever in mind. Or uh, put very simply, live a different way. Obey.